We're talking about rejoicing. Everything we just sung was leading up to this. Every song was intentional. Because we have so much to rejoice in. We have so much to praise the Lord for. Amen? One of my favorite songs, one of my favorite songwriters, Dustin Kensrue, wrote the Rejoice song we sang earlier. A lot of times we just sing through these songs, we don't think through these, these lyrics. He says, we are children of the promise, the beloved of the Lord, one with everlasting kindness, bought with sacrificial blood, bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. Rejoice. Come and lift your hands and raise your voice. He is worthy of all praise. Rejoice. Sing the mercies of your king and with trembling rejoice. This is what we come to do. Sing our voices and tremble at how good our God is and that we are his children. And so I want to just begin with a question as we often do. What do you rejoice in? What makes your heart glad? What makes you happy? What things just liven your spirits? And there are, there are a lot of those things, uh, whether it's you know, kids' events or cooking or things that you just really enjoy doing. This time of year, this is when guys get uncharacteristically passionate when the playoffs are on. Guys who never show emotion at any other time will raise their voice and jump up in no other way. That they won't do that on Sunday morning, but, but they will do it when it comes down to the last couple seconds. Now we have to ask ourselves, do we show that same kind of emotion when we think about how great our God is? Do we get as excited about our God as we do the other things that we're passionate about in our lives? And those things are, are good things. God wants us to rejoice in things. He wants to give us good gifts. He's the father of all good things. But the greatest gift of all was sent in his son. And do we rejoice at him sending his son as we rejoice as much as when LeBron James hits a three-pointer or misses a three-pointer? Do we get as excited about the things of God? And so when we think about this text this morning, I don't have a long introduction. I want to jump right in, but I want to ask one more question. What did Jesus tell us to rejoice over? Because that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Jesus, when he sent out the 72 disciples, we talked about this on Wednesday night. He sent them out and they're casting out spirits. Demons were falling down on the ground and writhing in pain because of the power that Jesus gave them. But you know what he told them? Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Don't rejoice in what you can do. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that your, your father knew you before the foundation of the earth. He also told his followers to rejoice when they are persecuted. Rejoice that your name is in heaven and rejoice when people hate you because of me. Those are the things that are to lift the spirits of God's people. And are those the things we re rejoice in? And so I want to explain your outline to you. We're going to walk through this, this passage this morning. You can write this down. Every bulletin has an outline. In it, and I encourage you to, to take notes. And hopefully there's some things we can pull out here. Because there's a lot of Christian ministry application in our sermon this morning. So first we have the problem. There's a problem in Samaria. That there's a hunger, a real need for a savior. There are people who are lost. They are far from God. In their ethnicity, there is no salvation. And so there's a hunger in Samaria. And then, but then there's a process. 
where Jesus is teaching kingdom essentials. He's, he's teaching kingdom knowledge to his disciples. So we've got a process and then there's education going on at the same time in this little interlude that we'll talk about. And then there's the purpose of it all, the harvest. So we're going to walk through this text this morning. And what does Jesus teach us about the Christian life and Christian ministry? And so we find ourselves at the end of this conversation with the woman at the well, the adulterous woman. And this is the very climax of the conversation. And this is where the disciples show up. So two weeks ago, we looked at at living water. We looked at what it means to drink of eternal springs and not just temporary water. And last week, we looked at proper worship. What does it mean to praise God for who he is and worship him in spirit and truth? And today, we're going to look at what all that is for. So open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 4. I'm actually going to start in verse 25. That won't be on your screen, so we'll check with you who actually have your Bibles open. John 4, 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. Amen. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the town. And she said to the people, come and see. A man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. God, you are good and gracious. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are exalted and lifted up. and We rejoice at the mere thought of who you are and what you have done. As we open your word this morning, rend our hearts. That we would look to you, the founder and finisher of our faith that we would see our lives as one of being harvest workers, rejoicing in kingdom work, sharing the sower and the reaper. Let us lift our eyes up to see that the harvest is at hand. And let us be people who sow seeds of the kingdom and seeds of righteousness. Let your word transform our mind and our hearts and our actions so that we follow Christ in all that we do. 
We are people who are known for our, our joy and our hope and our, and our love and, and our diligence. And that we are faithful in working toward the kingdom. Lord, we praise you for what you have done in our lives. We praise you because you sent your son and when we had no hope in and of ourselves. Lord, we praise you that the work you started, you will complete. And we praise you because we know your work is not yet finished in this world. Although it was finished on the cross, there are things that need to be completed here and we get to be a part of that. Lord, we love you and we praise you and everything we do is unto the glory of your precious name. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray and approach and approach the throne of the Father. And we say, Amen. Amen. So beginning in verse 27. So initially we talked about this tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. But this is interesting. There's another cultural thing that we don't really get because we weren't there. And so I want to bring you into first century Palestine at the time and into ancient Near Eastern culture. Just then his disciples came back. So John's kind of filling us in where we are in the action here. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Why include that detail? Not a Samaritan woman, or not even a Samaritan, but they marveled that he talked with a woman. Because at the time, and if we've talked to any at all, we, we talked about the law, we spent a lot of time with this on, in Romans, that the Pharisees added an extra hedge around the law. So they actually added their own law to the law. And one of those laws was that men and women did not interact with each other in public, ever. This is a quote from a rabbinical precept of the time. A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or daughter, on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even his own wife, and especially not with another woman, on account of what men may say. This is what the Pharisees taught them at the time. There's also this, this funny term. Uh, there's a group of Pharisees, the real extreme ones. They call them the bleeding and bruised ones. You know why? Because when these Pharisees walked throughout the, the town, if they saw a woman in public, they would close their eyes. And they would walk into walls and they'd trip over themselves. Literally, I would love to see that. But they were so legalistic. They were so concerned. You hear what was mentioned twice in there? They were concerned with what men may think. And so because of what men may think, they had all of these other burdens to people above the law. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he was not politically correct. Amen. Jesus did not care what people thought. He didn't care what the disciples thought. He had a message that was for the dying and for the lost. And he will do it in public because when the Pharisees added to God's law and created hindrances for people, Jesus challenged it to its face. I will show you what God requires. He requires that the good news be proclaimed to Jerusalem, all of Judea, and to Samaria. And now, how, now here we are in Samaria with the good news being proclaimed to this woman who by all accounts the Pharisees would have written off. Not only was she a woman, but she was a woman who had zero value because she was on her fifth. She had five husbands and she's on some other guy. But Jesus took time to sit down and speak with her. He didn't listen to the culture. He said, you can't say that. You can't go there. You can't talk to this person. Jesus says, I don't care. I'm God and you shouldn't either because the message of the gospel is more important than any kind of false social constructs you can put together. So that marks all of Jesus's ministry. He flies in the face of social pressures and Jesus did not care what people thought. And the disciples knew enough not to question him. If he was doing something 
Other times they seem to question him. But here, John says that no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And so the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people. Another interesting detail, because remember what she came there for. She came there to pull water out of the well. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. That well was 100 feet deep. She walked and she carried her uh, bucket and a jar and dropped it into the well for 100 feet and dragged it up this, this coarse rope of goat hair. And she leaves it. All that conversation two weeks ago when we looked at living water, she says, give me this living water so I never have to thirst again. So I never have to come to this well again. When she meets the Christ, she leaves all that behind. Isn't that incredible? She gets it. Because when you drink of the spiritual waters, regular water cannot quench your thirst anymore. And she leaves it behind. And she says this familiar message to everyone in the city. Come and see a man who told me all that ever did. It's the third time we've heard this in John so far. The first time. Jesus speaks to the disciples and before he calls them as disciples, they say, where are you staying? We want to hear more of this teaching. He says, come and see. This is the message of the Savior. Come and see. And when he meets Philip and Philip says, I've met the Christ. What did he tell Nathaniel? Come and see. Now this woman who meets the Messiah, this adulterous woman, this cast off Samaritan woman says, come and see this man who has told me everything I ever did. This should be the response when we meet the Christ. Come and see, come and see this man, because when you meet Christ, your life is on full display. He knows everything you ever did, every sin. And most of us are no better than the adulterous woman. He loved us anyway. The Messiah loved me. Come and see. And then we see the response. It's amazing that the response in Samaria is so much more strong than it was among the Jews. So she, this adulterous woman, runs throughout town. Come and see, I found the Messiah. Can this be him? Verse 30. And they, the Samaritan people, went out of the town and were coming to him. This language, they came and they were coming. It's spreading throughout, throughout the town. Imagine what's going through the minds of the Samaritan people. Wait, her. I mean, this woman. Jesus told her everything she's ever done. This I got to see. Because they knew what a long list that was. And, and, and for Jesus to call out everything she's done, that's pretty amazing. This I have to see. And there was a hunger for the things of the kingdom. There was this hunger for spiritual things. There was a desire for a savior. And we see that. Because all they had to hear was this could be the Messiah and they ran and they wanted to see and their hearts burned within them. They had a hunger for kingdom things. Uh, there's this evangelist from Sri Lanka. He's famous. Uh, his name is D.T. Niles. He's famous for saying evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. This is what the Samaritan woman is doing. She is hungry for spiritual things. She is a beggar. She does not have any righteousness on her own. And she finds bread. She finds living food. And she goes and tells everyone, I have found living water. I have found living food. Let us be beggars 
telling other beggars where to find food. So now it kind of sets the scene. This is where the action picks up. And John and the great storyteller that he is, he includes a comic book detail. Meanwhile, so over here, this is going on with the Samaritan woman, but now the disciples have, have come back. So this great storyteller, he builds all of the action up. He meets this woman. They go through this, this, this dialogue. He says he's, he's the Messiah. She runs and tells everybody what's going to happen. Ministry lesson. You know, break for this public service announcement. Jesus is, is going to break down what's going on here to the disciples. So meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. See what's going on? The gospel is going to the Samaritans. And Rabbi and the, the, um, the, uh, the disciples are saying, come and eat. Now, there's, there's going to be an interlude here for the, the next uh, seven verses or so, from 31 to, to 38. We're going to, look at, we're going to look at that because the Samaritans were the focus of this whole passage. But the disciples had a lot to learn. And so first we see that they're looking for physical food. Now, the disciples are like an Italian grandmother. Most of you do not have an Italian grandmother. I did. Um, and, and to her, manja is... That's, that's the first thing. The first matter of business is you have to eat. And if you're not eating, something's wrong with you. And, and, and so a lot of you kind of understand that. Amen. Exactly. Um, and, and so um, the disciples are kind of like this Italian grandmother, like, uh, yeah, I know you were just talking to this woman and we don't know what's going on over there, but you should probably eat something first. Like, can't, can we get some food before we talk about what's going on here? And I love Jesus's response. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So again, the disciples kind of muttering among themselves, like, did someone bring him some food? So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and he knew what they needed to hear. And he says one of the most profound statements that that he says, if you think about the implications of this. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. What an amazing statement. My food is to do the Father's will. You know what nourishes me? You know what energizes me? Being about my Father's business glorifying my father in heaven. That is my nourishment. That feeds my body and my soul. Praise God indeed. What's your favorite meal? Steak, pizza, wings, pasta, lobster. Another thing that Italians do, we will debate to the death what our favorite foods are. I have seen this. Top three foods, it's gotten intense. And you know what it's like after you have that like steak dinner, that lobster dinner, and it's just, that was one of the best things I've ever eaten. Does your soul feel that satisfied when you do the work of the kingdom? Does doing your father's will nourish you the same way your favorite meal does? Jesus reminded us, or have we forgotten that man shall not live on bread alone? We are such a blessed culture. We can go anywhere, anytime and get an amazing meal, the drop of a hat. And we take it for granted. But Jesus here is saying, my bread, my true food is to do the will of my father. Have you ever lost track of time in kingdom work? You forgot about food. You forgot that you were hungry. You forgot that you were tired. And someone comes to you and you're able to pray with them. You're able to share scripture with them. You're seeing someone grow into the image of Christ. Have you ever been there? It is the most glorious feeling you will ever have. When you 
walk someone through what it means to be a believer, when you cry with someone who is mourning, when you rejoice with someone who is celebrating what Christ has done in their lives. I have to be honest with you. We're in a season now in this church where I feel like that all the time. Jay prayed before service about all of the blessings that we have seen in this body. You don't understand how many conversations that I have with you guys nourishes me. Every time someone comes to me and says, how can I learn more about this? Or can you pray with me about this? Or what does the Bible say about this particular situation? It nourishes me. There are so many times if I forget about food, you know it's got to be good. If, If I skip a meal because we're having a good conversation, you know God is doing something there. And we should be people who are so nourished by being about kingdom work that food seems like a waste of time. And it should nourish our soul the way that it did for Christ. And he says, verse is not done here. And he says something that we can tend to skip over. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He didn't just come to start a work. He came to begin it and to finish it. And he's not just working aimlessly. He's not just working without a purpose. He is working to accomplish it. And so what does that mean? This, what we are seeing right now, are the seeds of gospel ministry. The seeds of the kingdom of God being proclaimed to a lost and dying world. And Jesus is beginning the work of preparing the soil. The founder and the finisher of our faith is now founding our faith. So those who trust and believe in him will have life everlasting. And the finishing of it is completed on the cross. So Jesus is nourished by doing the Father's work. And even being on the cross was nourishment for him. Can you imagine that? To die for your sins and mine fed his soul because he knew he was reconciling sinners to God. The work that he began, he finished on the cross. And he came here knowing that it had to be finished and there was no other way. What an amazing view of the heart of our Savior. He loved us so much that he mourned, that he, that he, that he cried, that he, that he hungered. And he did it because it nourished his soul and he did it to complete it. And our gospel message does not need to be added to. It does not need to be continued. Our Savior finished it. And that's what we rejoice in. That when he rose, when he died on the cross... He said, it is finished. When he rose, there was no more work to be done. He could sit down on the throne because his work was finished. But here we get the beginning. We get the seeds of of gospel ministry. But we have seen the full reward that our Savior is seated. Because his work is done. And we patiently, excitedly await his return. So then he continues. So he talks about his food. Now he wants to see how much they're they're paying attention. Verse 36. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? This is an agricultural society. They knew their entire calendar was planned around the harvest. They knew exactly when the seeds were planted and exactly when the harvest came. It's kind of like us. Like Kids are out of school. We know they go back to school at the end of August. Like We we, we plan our, our schedules around this. Some parents wish they could go back sooner. (laughs) <laughs> now, <laughs> um, and, and so these things we know instinctively and they knew this instinctively. And so what Jesus is telling them here is 
is, is, is easy as you know how the seasons go and how culture goes around you, as easy as earthly things come to you, heavenly things should come to you. Do you not say there are four months left, um, four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Don't just keep looking at, at, at worldly things. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. Look, behold, pick up your eyes. You don't have to wait four months. The harvest is now. And the fields are white for harvest. What does that mean? When grain comes to its, its uh, fullness, whatever. You know what I mean. So when grain is ready to be harvested, there are little white hairs that, that, that come out of it. And so as it's kind of blowing in the wind, you can see these, the, the, um, the, 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 the ripeness of these grains. And Jesus is saying, even though your physical harvest is not for four more months, the spiritual harvest is now. And the amazing thing is he's saying it as the Samaritans are coming to him. And he's saying, you know, you're trying to figure out what's going on with, with my stomach. Look up. I came here for a spiritual harvest and it's coming. It's coming right now. It's on its way. And he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Already. It's here. The one who reaps is receiving their wages. We know from Romans that the the wages of sin is death. But the wages of those who work unto the kingdom is the fruit of everlasting life, is eternal fruit. This is perfect wording here because those who are working under the kingdom are gathering fruit for eternal life. At the same time, this is food. You will gather food in kingdom work. And while you gather spiritual food for yourself, you will store up rewards in heaven. This has a dual purpose of fruit for the kingdom. And I'm sure that was not lost on Jesus as he used that that word. So you are fed by kingdom work and you you are storing up treasures in heaven. And the sower and reaper will rejoice together. This did not happen. In an agricultural society, you would plant your seeds in the fall and you would reap in the spring. They're six months apart. The sower and the reaper never came together. But not so with the kingdom of God. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. The sower and the reaper work together. This is such a beautiful picture of Christian ministry. And the Christian life is a joyous one. We are meant to rejoice together. We are meant to walk through this together. And we each have a role to play. He says that here in verse 37. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. Now many times we compare ourselves. Well, I'm not a reaper or I'm not a sower. I'm not like like them. Every believer plays a part in this harvest, even if it's small. Even if there's one seed planted and you never see the results. God is faithful to complete the work he began. And someone will will reap and we all celebrate together. One plants, another waters, another reaps, but Christ brings the increase. And how much does he love us? Uh, Look at Luke chapter 15. Go back a few pages in your Bible. There's this great picture in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost coin. How much he loves us. How much he seeks after us. How much he rejoices and the angels rejoice with us. Look at Luke chapter 15 verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins 
If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is kingdom ministry. Jesus is this this woman, although he has 99 coins. The, the one will not be lost. He knows his sheep. He will find them. And when the sinner repents, even the angels of heaven are rejoicing. We are to share in that chorus of rejoicing in heaven. That our Savior sought us and bought us when we were lost. And the angels rejoice when we repent and turn from our sins. And every time we enter into kingdom work and help others repent and believe turn to Christ, repent of their sins, the angels rejoice and our Savior rejoices and we should rejoice together. We should rejoice that the beggars have found bread. We should rejoice that the hungry have found food because Jesus went without food so that we could have spiritual food. Join in the harvest. We are to be people of the harvest and rejoice together. And so people when people tell me that, well, I can be a Christian by myself or I can be a Christian at, at home and I don't have to go to church and I can't interact, I don't have to interact with other Christians. It's not possible. Jesus tells us to be about kingdom work. We do it together. We rejoice together. You can't rejoice together alone. And I would encourage people, all of us know people, and I'm glad you guys are here. I'm not talking to you, but we all know people who say, well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to do this or that. Encourage people that there is a rejoicing that happens among the saints that cannot happen by yourself. And when the saints gather, we rejoice in what Christ has done. And we rejoice as his people, as those lost coins, those lost sheep. And we rejoice because we get to be about kingdom work. Because of the fall, all the way back to Genesis 3, Work now has toil associated with it. Work is a good thing. God created work as a good thing. But now because of the fall, because of the curse on earth, work now seems troublesome. And sometimes we associate this toilsome work that we have to go through Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, with, with kingdom work. Well, do I have to do this? Do I have to share it? And many churches, sadly, will tell you that you have to do, that you have to do kingdom work and make it guilt-ridden. Many of you grew up this way. We've, we've talked a lot about this, where evangelism was something that you had to do, was a pressure that, that you felt. Kingdom work is not something we have to do. Kingdom work is something we get to do. We get to be about our Father's business. We get to sow seeds that will last into eternity. We get to store up wages, wages in eternity. And let's not make kingdom work like other work. Let's recognize what it is. So Jesus tells them a little bit about kingdom work too. It's not just something you do, because look at verse 38. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and now you enter into this labor. Many times we, we may think that everything that goes on around us is just in our space and time. We forget that there are those who came before us. Jesus is telling them because the Samaritans are about to come. I sowed. Even the Samaritan woman sowed. You didn't have anything to do with it. But now you're going to be a part of the harvest. And that also looks back at the, the, the prophets. 
who for hundreds of years had proclaimed the Christ, who had put down gospel seeds even though they were rejected and killed for the name of the Lord. You didn't labor in that, but now you get to share in the harvest. Doing the will of the Father, kingdom work, proclaiming that there is judgment to come and repentance and forgiveness of sins leads to life everlasting is a perpetual process until Christ comes. And we're going to take part in a harvest in which we didn't begin. And no one can do it apart from others. Seeds are sown and they, they take a while. Sometimes. But the Lord is faithful to complete it. And Jesus gives us a picture of this. Now look at Mark chapter 4. Jesus tells us about the kingdom of God and the nature of the harvest. And he tells us about it explicitly. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Another parable of Jesus. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man could scatter seed on the ground, as if a man uh, should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. We don't have to know how kingdom work is done. We don't know. We don't have to know Christ's means. It's not up to us to know how things are done. We just know that we plant seeds. He knows not how the earth produces it by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, that's the word I was looking for earlier, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This is a picture of of kingdom ministry. We sow seeds, we don't know when they're going to come, but when the harvest is ready, we grab the sickle. Jesus is about to grab the sickle because here come the Samaritans. Ephesians 2 tells us that the kingdom of God is founded on the apostles and the prophets with Christ being that cornerstone. And every time we see another sinner turn and repent and believe, another living stone is added to the temple of God. And we are about that temple work, that kingdom work. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think that every soul is a living stone built up in the house of God? And one day they will all come to fruition and The temple that is in heaven being prepared will come back down to earth. This is the amazing fulfillment of the gospel story. So Jesus is saying, you're taking part in that. You weren't here when it started. You won't be here when when it's finished. But rejoice that you are here. Rejoice that you are a part of this work. And lift your eyes up because here they come. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because uh, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. The Samaritans come. Why? Because of her testimony. This most unlikely woman. Jesus chooses the most unlikely to save the other unlikelies. Look around the room. You are the most unlikely. And he will use you to save other unlikelies. And when we think we can't be used, he used a woman who had five husbands. And he used a people who thought that they were forsaken by God and had no inheritance with God's people. You don't think he can use you? That's why we do testimonies here. That's why we continue to hear from what God is doing in our lives. Because it should encourage us that the same Christ who raised you from death to life can use you to speak life into other people. And it should encourage all of us. That our stories, our testimonies, the the transformation of life that that, that we have 
It's a beautiful thing. It's something to rejoice in and it's something to share. And it should encourage one another that if they can share their, their testimony, then, then I can. Because the testimony of this one woman saved hundreds of countless people. Just by her testimony, they came running. It's amazing that this woman is never named. She's not even important enough to have her name. But her testimony would live on for generations. The, the Just saying, come and see the man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came. And they believed. Ravi Zacharias says that there are five witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and your testimony. And most people will never read the first four. There's some truth to that. Our lives are living testimonies. God's word is, is powerful, and I, and, I, and I never want to belittle God's word. But people who are not reading scripture, and we call ourselves Christians, they're looking to us at, at, to see who Jesus is. And we should point them to God's word. But because of our witness, look at what Christ has done in my life. They'll point them to the Christ, and that's exactly what happens here. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Again, something else we might just gloss over. Two days, he's sitting and teaching with them. We have a hard enough time staying here for a couple hours. We go, we, we go back to our lives. We're so busy. We have so much to do. They're, they heard the words of the Messiah, and they said, stay here two days. I've heard many stories about this. Um, Friends who are, who are missionaries who go to China and where they, most of them are sharing a copy of the Bible. And when someone can come and teach them from the Bible, say, don't just teach me some of it. Teach me all of it. I heard David Platt tells this story about uh, going to an underground church. And uh, he came and said, you know, what would you like to know? They said, the Bible. Well, what part of the Bible? All of it. And so they started from the morning. And they went until the evening every day, walking through the entire Bible. Tell us more. Just feeding on the word of God. This desire when, when, the, when ears are open for the first time and eyes are open, tell me everything. They meet the Christ and he's there for two days. I would have loved to have been there and see that morning till night. Teach me. I want more. And many more believe because of his word. Our testimonies are a tool that the Lord uses. But it is Christ himself who confirms our witness. They believe because of his word. They believe because of the truth of his word. We will, we will point people to Christ, but then they will read the, the, the scriptures and they will see the truth that they contain. They will hear the words of Christ and say, I believe. My eyes have been opened. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. The woman's testimony piqued their interest, and that's what our testimonies do. Then when they meet the Savior, say, you were, you were, you were good, but Jesus is amazing. He's the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of the Jews, but even us, the unlikely Samaritans, and the entire world. Do you ever reflect 
on being able to be a part of kingdom ministry for the savior of the whole world. So many times we make ministry too small. Well, are people going to appreciate me? What's, what are people going to say? Well, why am I doing this? Is anyone going to notice? Does any of this matter? Our Savior calls us to be a part of the work of redeeming the world. The God who created all things knows us by name and has given us our gifts so that we can give him glory and we can be nourished in his food. Jesus has called us to be nourished with the same things he's nourished with. So what was the result of Jesus' teaching? So yes, they, they, they believed. Um, but a few days in the future, turn to Acts just before we close. Look at Acts chapter 8. So many, many believed. And then as the disciples disperse and as they proclaim the gospel to all of the neighborhoods and all of the nations, look at chapter 8 in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the, to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. The seeds that Jesus had sown had piqued the interest. They were on the edge of their seats. The crowds with one accord, everyone was paying attention to hear about the Christ. They paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many were being paralyzed. So many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. The seeds that were started by Jesus became joy in a land of forgotten people. That when the seeds had been planted and then the disciples went out, the soil was fertile. The soil was, was ready. Jesus taught them for two days. And not long after, Philip comes back and they're ready for more. They're ready to hear about the Christ. And I'm sure that the gospel had spread. This is the purpose of gospel ministry, the harvest. There is a problem. Everyone is dead in sin. Everyone is as dead as the adulterous woman, as dead as the Samaritans. And Jesus is teaching us through the process. Kingdom work is a school. Everything that we do in, in ministry is so that Jesus can teach us. Even when the harvest was coming, he didn't just say, all right, watch this. He said, no, I want you to understand some kingdom principles first. And so it's important to recognize that when things don't make sense or we don't know how God can use you, the best question you can ask, I tell people over and over and over again is, Lord, what are you teaching me through this? What do you want me to learn from this? Because Jesus was doing a mighty thing before the eyes of the disciples. But most importantly, he said, look, lift up your eyes. Look at what I'm doing. The harvest is ripe. Pay attention. And that's what the Lord is beckoning us to do. I will finish the work. I will complete it. I want you to trust in me. I want you to be about my work. And I'm going to teach you along the way. The disciples were concerned about Jesus' hunger but the Samaritans were starving for spiritual food. Jesus was not concerned with what people thought. I just want to encourage you guys, don't be concerned with what people think. Know that people's real need is not food. It is spiritual food. That we get to be about kingdom work and the harvest is, is ripe. 
Let us be kingdom workers. Let us partake in the harvest and let us rejoice together. Let us rejoice in what God is doing. Let us rejoice in what God will continue to do. And let us rejoice until our Savior returns. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. That the broken will be restored. That the sick will be made well. That beggars will find food. Thank you that we get to partake in your kingdom work. Let us be people who stores up fruit for eternal life. That we find our wages and our nourishment is doing your will. I'm so encouraged by these people here. I love their hearts for you. Their desire to grow in the gospel. I love the way that they love one another. I just pray that you continue to encourage them, that you make them steadfast in the task that you have given them, that you give them perseverance, and that you give us opportunities to share the gospel, to share the good news, to share living water and bread that does not perish with a world that is starving. I pray this powerful name of the Christ, the Messiah, the only name under heaven in which man can be saved. Jesus Christ. Amen.